Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to church. It's great to be with you again today, preaching once again from the book of James. Uh, if you recall, last time I preached through James 4, verses 1 to 12, which was all about the divisions that we create with each other because of our own selfish desires and our fixation on always getting our own way. But it also reminded us of God's promise to restore, of how he gives grace to the humble, to those that admit their sin and come before him. Now, in verses 13 to 17, we're going to be talking about a conflict of wills, our will versus God's. And we'll see the brevity, how the brevity of our own lives and discover the vanity of rejecting God and how we live. But we will also see the perfection of God and his ultimate plan for our lives. So I have two points for this passage. Point number one, we are not God. We are not God. And point number two, Christ is God. Christ is God. That seems obvious, right? Clearly, we know we are not God. Um, and it would have been obvious for James's audience as well, but he seems to think that it's important enough that he has to reiterate this. So as, as we dive into this text, I think we'll all have to admit that oftentimes we act as if we are God. Because if we really view Christ as God, then that means that we need to listen to him. So we are not God. Christ is God. So picture with me here for a second. The year is 1959. On a cold, stormy February night in Iowa, some of the biggest names in popular music at the point, at that point in time, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper, had been touring all over the Midwest United States for their winter dance party tour. With 24 shows in three weeks, needless to say, it was a hectic schedule. And to some of you, some of those names might sound pretty familiar. Buddy Holly had become a star at that point uh, with hits like Peggy Sue and That'll Be the Day. And Richie Valens, who some of you might know for his rendition of La Bamba, was only 17 years old. His career had just started to take off and he was gaining recognition around the country. However, during their tour, they constantly encountered problems with the touring bus and it was always breaking down and leaving the musicians freezing inside until it could be repaired. So on one particular night, Holly decided to charter a plane uh, to the next gig. Unfortunately, however, the pilot had been unaware of a weather advisory that was issued earlier in the day, and so as a result of poor visibility and stormy conditions, the plane crashed only shortly after takeoff, killing the pilot and all three musicians. And as a result, February 3rd, 1959 has become known as the day the music died. Four men with full intentions on arriving at the next show, completely unaware of their fate, in the prime of life and the height of their careers, gone, dead in an instant. Like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That is our life, and that's one thing that can so quickly remind us that we are not God, but rather that Christ is God, is the brevity of our own lives. So turn with me to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. I'll just give you a second to get there. 
James 4, 13 to 17. It starts off by saying this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. First off, we're going to take a look at verses 13 and 14. And this is going to form the basis of my first point that we are not God. Though oftentimes we wish to be, we desire to be, and we live as if we are. And and we do this because of our nature, because we honestly think that we know better than God. But remember the lie that the serpent told Eve in the Garden of Eden. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It was a lie, of course. Adam and Eve never became like God, but still to this day, it is the same lie the devil gets us to believe over and over again. And James is looking to address it here. In verse 13, he uses the example of businessmen making plans for the future. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. And by saying this, these men are making some serious assumptions. As John MacArthur puts it, there are five main problems with these assumptions. They choose their own time, today or tomorrow. They choose their own location, such and such a town. They choose their own duration, to spend a year there. They choose their own enterprise, to engage in business. And finally, they choose their own goals, to make a profit. So it's time, location, duration, enterprise, and goals. And just to be clear, James is not saying that it's wrong to make a profit. He's certainly not saying it's wrong to plan ahead or to be prudent. In fact, it's wise to do so. But what he is saying is that these men, in all their planning, all their hopes and dreams and all their ambitions, they gave no thought of God. And though they believe in him, because remember that in this section, James is still addressing a group of Christians. But these Christians live their life as if their God does not even exist because they have replaced him with other things, with business, with a profit, with their goals, with themselves. So church, this begs the question, though many of us here would call ourselves Christians, how many of us live our lives as though God does not even exist? Bible scholar Spiro Sadiates said that it is practical atheism that is unfortunately far more common than reasoned unbelief. And what James is ultimately talking about is a clash between our will and God's and our refusal to submit. And we'll come back to this theme later on and we'll see how James ties it into the overall passage. So let's look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Charles Spurgeon used the example of a cloud, and today in our age of aviation, we can even better visualize this. Do you ever notice that when you're on a plane and you're 35,000 feet up in the air and you're high above the clouds, 
The sun shining bright through the windows and the clouds below look almost tangible. They're so distinctly shaped and fluffy and from that high up, they look just like freshly fallen snow that you could almost walk upon and feel the crunch beneath your feet. But as, we, as you begin to descend and pass through those same clouds, their shape becomes less distinct, less fluffy until you're passing in the middle of them and they're nothing more than a mist that you could barely even grasp with your hand, let alone walk upon. And the next day when the weather changes, the sun comes out, those same clouds are gone. The same is true of our lives, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So if you'll bear with me for a second, I'm going to paint a pretty bleak picture, but a truthful picture of our lives, and I'm going to do that so then we can see all the more clearly the beauty and the hope of what Christ is offering us. And if we look at this passage, passage in James, we can see a striking resemblance to a parable that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, known as the parable of the rich fool. And just listen to these words of Jesus. Some in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who had made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Further down in verses 29 to 31, Jesus says, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. So what Jesus is saying is not that that's wrong or automatically sinful to be wealthy, nor is he saying not to plan for the future and prepare for things ahead of time. But what he is saying is this. Who is your God? What do you ultimately value most in life? Who is your God? Is it money? Is it your career, future retirement, your comfortability? Is it sex? Or here's one that may be a little bit more controversial. Is it your family, your kids, your friend group, your wife or husband, popularity and approval at school, your grades, your boyfriend or girlfriend? Because none of them can be your God and they will never live up to it. My girlfriend Celeste is an awesome girlfriend and I really love her a lot. She's an awesome girlfriend but a lousy God, <laughs> right? Because it's not her job to be God. And that is why Jesus says that it is the fool who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Because when you value, when you love something or someone more than Jesus Christ, what happens when that thing or that person is stripped away from you? 
is taken from you, disappoints you? What happens when your idols, your man-made gods, vanish like a mist? Where do you now find your hope, your joy, your purpose when everything's been taken from you? You'd be broken, distraught, devastated, and you're left without hope, without joy, without peace, without purpose, and without meaning. And that's why Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your God is anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, it can be destroyed in the blink of an eye. But in the person of Jesus Christ, he will never leave us nor forsake us. As Romans 8, 35 to 39 states, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church Jesus is better and far greater than any other God that you could possibly manufacture for yourself. So will we be in love with ourselves, acting as our own gods, or will we worship the one who is only truly worthy of our highest affections? So Calvary, again, though we say we trust in Jesus, do we actually end up living as if he's not real? Do we really trust in him? And this brings me back to verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Charles Spurgeon, once again, put it in his typical poetic way. He says, death evidently pays no respect to character, age, or hopefulness. A man may addict himself to the service of his country, but his patriotism will not protect him. He may be surrounded with a wall of affection, but this will not screen him. He may have at command all the comforts of life, and life may ooze out before the physician is aware. He may be tenderly beloved of an affectionate mother, and his name may be engraven on the heart of the fondest of wives. But death hath no regard to the love of women. It is appointed unto men once to die. Remember my story at the beginning, on the day the music died. Death had no regard and paid no respect to youth, success, wealth, or the fact that these three musicians were in the prime of their life and careers. And the truth is, one day the music is going to stop for all of us. Because the deception of sin, as Steve reminded me the other day, is believing we're in control until we realize we're not. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards, 
back in the 1740s, uses this quite vivid illustration. And this is what he says about the frailty and the brevity of life. You hang by a slender thread. With the flames of divine wrath flashing about and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you a moment. This image of hanging by a thread that could be burnt through at any second shows us that we really don't have as much control and autonomy as we may like to think. I mean, our current pandemic, COVID-19, is the perfect example that despite all the advances made in our society, we do not as have much power as we imagine. Rather, Christ, the only sovereign ruler, creator, and sustainer of the universe, he is Lord, he is King, he is God, and his plan will come to pass. So, given all this talk and the brevity and fragility of life, we could be forgiven to think that this is surely quite the disheartening prospect. And indeed, if we were to leave it there, if that's all we were to know, certainly it would be. It would be a hopeless prospect. But James is going to show us how to properly respond to this reality and that we can have hope because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Verse 15 Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This brings me to my second point. Christ is God. Not us. Christ is God. So at the beginning of the passage, James reveals to us the arrogance of thinking that we are ultimately in control of our own lives. And here, he shows us what our proper response should actually be. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. For those of you who may not know, Mile One Mission is in the process of planting its second church. We have Kilbride Community Church, and hopefully soon, we will have Downtown Community Church. And myself and Adam Diamond are a part of the core team for this downtown church plan, and it's really been really exciting, preparing and praying and dreaming and working towards what we hope to see God do in this area. And we're looking to start Bible studies sometime in the fall, and we're just asking God for opportunities to connect with the community and that people would come out and hear the gospel and for lives to be transformed. I mean, that's what we want to see. And so with all of that, we've been looking for a place to rent, a meeting space that we can host a Bible study at. And we tried coffee shops and rental spaces and church buildings and even looking at places for lease, most of which are exorbitantly expensive downtown. But so far, it's been a combination of either people not getting back to us, all the spaces are already booked, or it's just simply unaffordable. And after months of looking around and nothing to show for it, it can be quite discouraging. We want to see communities restored with the gospel. We want to see revival take place. We want to see Jesus magnified to people, but it feels like we can't even get started. And if there's one thing that has caused, that this has caused, it's that it's forced me and Adam to realize that we're not in control. 
Christ is over all this. And in the grand scheme of things, we don't really know what is best for us. Douglas Moose states, James warns, therefore, of the tendency of the world to press us into its mold by leading us, perhaps very subtly, to begin assuming that we control the duration and direction of our lives. Such an attitude is simply inconsistent with a Christian worldview in which there is a God who sovereignly directs the course of human affairs. And Calvary, that is a good thing. That is a good thing because God is ultimately for you. He knows what's best for you. Supreme joy is found in him. Look, you don't want me to be God. And you don't want yourselves to be God. If I had my way, we'd have a place for downtown community church right now, but we don't. And so could it be, perhaps, could it be that God is using this to drive me and Adam and the rest of Mile One Mission closer to him? And could it be that amidst all our frustrations with finding a place to meet that is using this for a means for our ultimate joy and his ultimate glory? And could it be that he has a plan that is better than anything that I could possibly draw up? And maybe, and this is my hope and prayer for downtown, that maybe if God tarries, hundreds of people will come to downtown community church. And what happens? I mean, what really happens if a thousand people genuinely, and I mean really, come to Christ Not just say a quick prayer at the altar, not just sign a piece of paper to rededicate your life, but I mean, what if a thousand people in downtown were actually regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Do you know what a move of God that would be? And what if all our frustration, all our difficulty to even get started right now is to simply prepare us for that? Now, this will tell us who we really worship. What if none of that happens? What if it all crashes and burns? What if the only evidence left that downtown community church was even a thought in someone's mind is a logo and a couple of t-shirts? If that happens, then who will we worship? Who will be my God then? Will it be ministry, success, for Calvary? What if this building in paradise never gets built? Who will be our God then? A building? Would be how many people came out last Sunday morning? Or will we be able to truthfully say, along with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's in moments like that when everything is taken from us. And if we run to Christ with empty hands and nothing of ourselves to offer and simply cling to the foot of the cross as a child terrified of the dark clings to his father's side. It is then that we will realize that all we ever need is found in Jesus and nothing could ever separate us from him. He is God and we should follow after him. With Christ, we have everything we need and without him, we have nothing, nothing. Just as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity 
and a striving after wind. Remember that that was written by the guy who at his peak was one of the most powerful men in the world. Everything he desired was at his fingertips. Wealth, pleasure, power, renown. And at the end of it all, this is what he has to say. Vanity of vanities. It was all meaningless. Calvary, I have lived for the vanity of vanities, and it leads nowhere. So many things that vanished into thin air. I remember running from my call to ministry because I didn't really want to trust God with my life. Growing up, I wanted to be a golfer. Later on, I wanted to be a musician. And nowhere in those decisions did I think to ask the Lord if this was what he willed for my life. Because without the beauty and the richness and the preciousness of knowing Jesus Christ, you will never find lasting joy. You will never find lasting peace. You will never find true purpose and meaning. Oh, you'll look for it. You will look for it everywhere. But you will always be left wanting. You will look for it in your relationships, in your spouse, in your family, in your friends, your career, your wealth, your possessions, your retirement, approval, grades, sex, pleasure, porn, alcohol, the downtown bar scene. You will look for it everywhere and be left despairing and empty-handed. That's because the only one who can fill the God-shaped hole in all our hearts is God himself. And when we really get that, then we can say with the psalmist, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I feel like every time I preach now, I got to drop this C.S. Lewis quote because it so perfectly describes us. So forgive me if you've heard this plenty of times before, but I just have to quote this again. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Calvary, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is our life? For we are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So instead we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And if we want to see what this looks like in practice, just look at Acts 21. Look at what Paul says. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, and get this, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul knew what the Lord's will for his life was and followed it even unto death. And then when we get this, when we get and are gripped by that, 
We can honestly say with Paul in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Some translations say I counted it as dung. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And if we can go back to our passage in James 4 again, let's look at verses 16 and 17. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James returns here once again that we are not God. And when we act like we are, we boast in our arrogance and that boasting is sin. We act as if we are the ones in control when in reality, God is. We're always making all our little plans without the faintest concern for what Christ asks of us. And when we do this, then we're all the way back at the Garden of Eden again, or rather all the way back at James 4, our passions are at war within us. We make ourselves friends of the world and enemies of God. We're not meant to follow our own wills on passions and desires. We're not meant to boast in ourselves and in our arrogance, but as Craig Blomberg and Miriam Kamel state, we're meant to boast in Christ. The Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians of this same thing. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in the last verse of this chapter, James makes a statement that at first glance seems a little bit disconnected from the rest of the passage. But we'll see that it has a purpose for being there. Verse 17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You see, sin is not just the evil that we do, it is also the good that we fail to do. And what James is basically saying to this group of Christians is, well, now that you've heard this rebuke, this reminder that you're not God, but rather Christ is God, if we now fail to live this out, we are in sin. He's telling them, okay, I've told you this, I've gotten it off my chest, now it's on you guys if you reject it. That's what he's telling his audience. And that's essentially what James is telling me and all the rest of you here. And he's firm with them because he doesn't want them going after the world because he knows it's pointless because he loves them. He doesn't want them following their own desires, their own passions, their own wills. He wants them following Christ because he knows that everything else is a dead-end road. Vanity of vanities. Remember, if there's one guy who's a great example of rejecting Christ as his God, it's James. Right? He's the half-brother of Jesus, who at one point of time mocked and insulted Jesus for his teaching, for his claims, egged him on, but now has come to love and serve and honor the one whom he once rejected. Church, Christ is king. He is Lord. He is God. We are not You say, we may believe intellectually, obviously. Well, we know we're not God. But how do we live out that belief? Because if we don't live it out, then we're still buying into the Garden of Eden again. You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, says the serpent. Church, it was a lie then, and it's still a lie today. Because the truth is, Only Christ can satisfy. And we know this. We know Christ is better. We know his will for us is greater because James has told us and he says, if we fail to do what we have been told here now, what we know is right, it is sin. Jesus says the same thing in Luke 12, 47. And that servant who knew his master's will 
but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But church, this is good news to the believer because there is such joy in knowing Christ. Nothing else can compare. I, I know for some of you and for me, you know, at times he feels distant and perhaps many of you here can sympathize right now. And when you feel like just asking, why is my delight, my joy so short-lived? And why does everything in the world seem so appealing? And you wonder to yourself, where is God? And why can I not hear him? But he does not stand far off. And he is not indifferent to your suffering. And his promises are always true. James tells us earlier in this chapter, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so if you feel like you don't know how to draw near to him, then open up this book, the living word of God. Because if this really is the living word of God, if these really are the words of Christ, and he said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father, then we can see God through his word. And when we seek after him there and in prayer, and when we do it, not as a custom, not as a religious practice, not so you can check the box, not so we can say, well, we did our reading today, or we can stick to our yearly plan on time. That's great and all, but just forget about that for a second. And instead, every time you open up that book, earnestly, sincerely, cry out to God like Moses when he said, let me see your glory. And he will not turn you away. Why will he not turn you away? Because he promises, right here in James 4, earlier on, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I, I, I say this to encourage believers and to remind you that your God is the gentle, compassionate, patient, grace-abounding Christ. But... If you're here this morning and you do not know him, there is no reason to wait a second longer because you have, as we've learned, no idea what tomorrow will bring. Charles Spurgeon once said this regarding this very passage in James. I like quoting Spurgeon a lot in this sermon, as you can see. He says, death is an awful thing to those who have their all in this world. If they could but live here forever, they would be at peace. But it cannot be so. God will not give men an immortality in this life to spend in disregarding him. They must die. They may put Christ far from them, but they cannot put death far from them. They may avoid the cross, but they cannot avoid the grave. He goes on to say, I would to God, I would whisper this wisdom into every procrastinator's ear. Why do you halt and hesitate? If you are desirous to be saved from the wrath to come, why do you put it off till a tomorrow which may never come? Will you delay repenting and die impenitent? Will you delay faith and perish as an unbeliever? Will you keep back from mercy and pardon and refuse the free grace of God? I pray you do not. And he finishes with this exhortation. Come, my brother or sister, what you do, do quickly. If you wish to honor your Lord while you are here and win jewels for his crown, up and at it, for the day is far spent. 
You cannot afford to waste a moment, for you have much to do and very little time to do it in. Help us, O Spirit of the Lord. And Spurgeon here is encouraging us that if we do not know Christ, that we can run to his open arms immediately without some prerequisite, but with empty hands. Do not waste another day if you do not know him. And Calvary, praise God that he is God and and not us. And if we really get, really get what that means, then we ought to listen to him. And that should really challenge us about the idols in our own hearts. So church, if there's one thing I wish all of you to take away from this today is as we soon get dismissed from here and before our lunch plans crowd out all our thoughts, remember that Jesus is better, that his will for our lives is far greater than any hope or dream that we have conjured up, far greater than any sin that we habitually struggle with, far greater than our aspirations, our struggles, our pain, our temptations, all our sin. Let's remember that Christ is merciful, patient, gracious, gentle, kind, tender-hearted, and in control. As Proverbs 16:33 says, "The lost is cast into the lap. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord." So, with that, may we stop trusting in ourselves and instead listen to Christ that we may be able to honestly say As Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, but yours, Lord, be done. Let's pray. Father, I just come to you now, and I want to pray, Lord, that Calvary would hear a better sermon than I could ever preach, that your Holy Spirit could work in all their hearts and especially in my heart, Lord, because I need your grace every day. And I ask, Father, and I pray that we would do as you will, recognizing, Lord, that you are for us, that you love us, that you do not stand far off, that you're not indifferent, but you desire to be near to us. And so I pray, may we recognize and realizing, Lord, that we're not God, but that you are. That everything you offer is far greater, far better, far more satisfying and lasting than anything this world could offer. So may we get that and may we run to you, God, every day for your grace that abounds all the more than all of our sin. May we run to you with empty hands and into your open embrace. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.